Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 309th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patrons Don Revis, Hayton Davidson, Daniel Rhodes, and Simon L. Smith. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Unlow. Today we've got Grant Kaler on the show. He's, among other things, the executive producer of one of my very favorite shows, Alone. But he's also done a ton of other documentary and reality style shows. Alaska, The Last Frontier, Castaways, Emergency Call, starring Luke Wilson. I'm going to be honest, I nerded out a little bit because I really, truly love his show Alone very, very much. And so we go in deep, not just about that specific show and its kind of unique production style, but hopefully kind of a general sense of like what it takes to to tell a story in a unique way and their approach on how to do that and and kind of essentially reinventing both reality competition shows and survivalist shows all in one crazy concoction. For those people that don't know what Alone is, Alone is a show. You can watch it on Netflix, though the first couple seasons started on the History Channel. And it is a show in which they take 10 individuals, they drop them in different locations in the wilderness with nothing but video gear, basically, and see how long they can survive completely alone. The last person to quit wins a big chunk of money. And of course, what is fascinating about it to me is that these people have to film themselves. They are filming the show. And so we really go in deep with Grant about how to make a show where the talent, where the cast is half the camera crew. Mm -hmm. And then what else you have to film in order to fill out the story and finding stories. And, you know, I always am really fascinated by unscripted stuff because the storytelling shockingly enough, is exactly the same as the scripted stuff. And so you are building moments, you are trying to tap into meaning in people's lives, but you're doing it all in reality. And as Grant tells us, this show is really raw and very real. Like they don't rearrange timelines. They don't really send producers in to set up fake scenarios for people Mm -hmm. to survive. It's the real deal. I always talk about trying to build a philosophy or ground rules for any project that I'm working on. And this one alone, due to its premise, I think has a few of those baked in. We talk about how the aesthetic of the show evolved and how they found something unique in particular about it. You know, I think it just goes back to your point, Oren, the fundamentals of storytelling, the fundamentals of production are all present in this show, even though it feels stripped down and minimalist. All of those fundamentals are still even more important And also the production side, I think, is really a unique challenge and the same sort of questions that you're asking on, 
you know, a giant TV show, you still have to ask yourself on this survivalist show where the contestants are your whole crew. It's cool and it's great. And also another interesting thing is that I met Grant because his daughter goes to school with my daughter. And Mm -hmm. when I found out that he was the showrunner on Alone, I texted Matt immediately because, you know, Matt, I knew was a fan of Alone. Again, another reason to live in L.A. Mm hmm. Before we jump in with Grant, I was going to tell you an interesting observation from this job I had today. It was a commercial, but we were basically setting up like a fake cooking show. And the clients really wanted us to put like a giant sign that had the name of the cooking show up on the wall behind our people. And I was like, uh, okay, a giant sign with the name of the show on the wall behind our two actors. And our actors are of very different heights. I was a little worried about having this big sign and I was getting like kind of a little frustrated because what now we have these people are already difficult enough to frame and they had to one of them was going to wear all black one is wearing all white and on top of that you're giving me a wall of text to put behind them mm-hmm. it's going to make framing really difficult and I started doing my research I was like well let me see how other cooking shows do it in competition shows and various shows and what I found is that basically no shows have signs with their name of their show Ellen or like kind of those daytime shows, they'll have a TV that they cart around that has the name of whatever guest they have on. But in general, putting signs with lots of text as part of your set behind people's heads is like a really bad idea. Let's talk about specifically why it's bad, because I think you and I shoot enough to be like intrinsically aware of all of the inherent problems but let's talk it through real quick and i'll tell you our sign was six feet wide by three feet tall so so the main thing that i see essentially is that forces you to either have an okay wide shot or to see part of a word on every single one of your close-ups let's say the word is kitchen or something the name of your show is mm-hmm. like matt's kitchen and then in the close-up on your face it just says like hen or chen or basically now we're starting to worry about what it says behind you. It's distracting. It's ugly. So I was like, look, we're going to put the sign on the front. I did a mock-up on Photoshop on the front of the counter. We'll push in. We'll do super wide in the beginning. And then we'll be past the sign. And then they're like, well, maybe as a compromise, we'll make a small version of the sign. We'll just put it on one of the shelves in the background. And, you know, when we cut to someone's close-up, maybe we see it kind of blurry in the background. So we do it. We have everything ready. We have the art department measure, the whole thing. And And then like two nights before the shoot, they're like, yeah, you know, We haven't really heard back from like the higher ups at the company. We really know they like the storyboard. So let's just be ready to put the sign up there. We ended up just building this giant sign, putting it behind their heads. And then we got to the shoot today and it looked pretty, (laughs) it looked pretty great. (laughs) It looked really good. (laughs) Yeah. That's, oh, that's great. And so. Hey, kudos to you for not spoiling the punchline. Thanks. Well, because. Nice slow burn. Because literally I talked to every single person and explained to them why this is going to be bad. So. Walk me through why it looks good. Uh, What ways were we wrong in in those estimations? So there's three things. One is the design of the sign was really simple, like simple typography. And the letters weren't too thick. We made them kind of like an off-white on a blue, kind of a light blue background. And the light blue kind of as the brand color. And it's the only place Mm -hmm. we really incorporate the brand color into the, the set. If we wouldn't have had that sign there, we would have just had these like wooden, brown wooden cabinets which is fine, but we had like a white kitchen, brown cabinets. The talent is just wearing white and black chef's coat. It really took a frame that would have been mostly brown and white and gave it a nice color. It's like a kind of a slightly desaturated blue. So it wasn't overwhelming. And then on the close-ups, I kind of shot more cross coverage as opposed to frontal. So we really kind of weren't really seeing the sign much because these two um, 
chefs were talking to each other. So it was more kind of angled. So yeah, I don't know. It ended up being kind of helping. And it's not that I was like 100% wrong. I still think there is a version of a sign behind people that is just very distracting. But somehow it wasn't distracting in our version. My lesson that I learned is you can fight for what you want, but if you don't get it, then lean into what you have and maybe it'll be even better. And with that, I want to tell you all about our Patreon. So patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. You can give us a dollar a month, $2 a month, $15 gets you a just shoot it podcast hat. Yeah, we appreciate it. It's what helps us keep going. Thanks everyone. And enjoy our interview with Grant. We are here with Grant Kaler. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I don't know if it's accurate to call me a super fan, but I am a <laughs> big, big fan of Alone. I will lurk on subreddits. I have favorite <laughs> contestants. I've watched every episode. I'm curious to hear your take on this. It was like a really ideal pandemic show for people. You know, I think that like maybe my favorite season that kind of hit Netflix right around when people were really locked down and looking for things to watch. And it is a show about the main theme is like, what is it to be alone? Right. And so we are all kind of contemplating this as a as a society and as a people. And then you're watching different contestants, you know, hit their breaking point and decide like, oh, what does it mean to be around other people? Is that important to me? All of those things. And also maybe, you know hunt a moose or something it was i think a really perfect pandemic show and so i i did really kind of get into it during all of that and also the the plots are so meditative you know like there's episodes that will be like oh man a guy saw a bear in the distance and that's an act break you know so <laughs> right and yeah. um I, it is worth mentioning that you created the show in 2015 right before it was in style yeah. to be alone <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. In, and like I was social in York, distancing in New York City at the time. The opposite of, of being alone. The opposite of one. Yeah, yeah. Can you describe the show to us, just like in a sentence, and kind of tell us how it came to be? You know how it came to be is actually it morphed a lot during the development phase because it was it was originally conceived as a pretty simple survival show. Um, mm -hmm. It was based off of Grizzly Man. I don't know if you guys seen that documentary. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. The, the friend of mine that originally pitched that concept was just we were, you know, we were going to find people, cast people to give us that type of survival experience. And then mm -hmm. what happened and is, for, for, and for listeners maybe who don't don't remember Grizzly Man, it was a documentary about a man who would go up to Alaska and live with bears and like pal around with them, and then had a, an unfortunate uh, That's end right. to, to all of it. Yeah. And he filmed and it, it himself, most of it, right? Or mm -hmm. him, his wife or exactly. came on occasion. Yeah, and there was just something, like, you use the word meditative. There was something very meditative about that footage as well. And then someone at History said, you know what, let's make this a competition show. For whatever reason, I had some time, and I kind of went down this rabbit hole of studying. Like, I, I got really deep into social isolation theory and mm -hmm. what happens to people when they're alone. And we started to realize that that's what the show was really going to be about. It didn't really matter if you could survive for 20, 30, 50 days. It was going to be, can you deal with being alone for that long? And mm -hmm. so as we, as we continued to study that, it was like, okay, this is the, the, the whole show is kind of shifting. It's not going to be, we knew it wouldn't be action packed adventure survival because yeah there's you know there's there's threats and predators and you're starving and and that stuff's dramatic but it was really going to be like who can be by themselves for that long mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. paper of course it sounded really 
really boring, uh, you know, because you have you have people by themselves. And, and we wanted to do it so real and raw that we weren't going to have producers next to them. And so it was really this kind of really crazy swing for history at the time, because you have no idea what you're going to get back at night, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as, as far as the footage goes. Right. And by history, you mean history channel. Exactly. I'm going to pump the brakes because, I, again, there's a bunch of stuff to, to unpack there. But just to reiterate, literally, each contestant is just dropped off in the wilderness with a package of a few items that they're allowed to bring along with them and then a bunch of camera gear, right? And some sort of GPS tracker where you can keep track yeah, of Yeah, some, some safety gear and stuff as well. Yeah. I think there is an interesting evolution from like the first season when people don't know anything about the show or anything. The first few contestants that kind of tap out, you know, decide to go home. It's within that first week, right? And if you look at later on further seasons, people get much more hardcore, much more intense. And so the idea of how long these people are going to, the contestants are going to be in play i think extends the logistics of just like camera gear batteries logging footage i'm dying (laughs) i'm constantly thinking like oh man each of these people has how many cameras right they have like a dslr it looks like and then a few gopros what's Mm -hmm. what's the camera kit that they're dropped off with yeah and and what was the calculus behind creating it well season one it was on vancouver island which is one of the wettest places in the world so that was that was kind of issue number one right so mm-hmm. we needed to find the most robust camera that still looked decent um we didn't want it to be all shot with gopros certainly didn't want it shot with bones and stuff like that so we wanted decent cameras but that was that was still light enough to hold like this you know your arms mm-hmm. gonna get pretty tired like, like a selfie that, but, yeah 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 and you're exactly. you're living on mice and maybe a fish you caught two days ago that's right, right exactly yeah. <laughs> handling the rain and the elements was the biggest thing and then Essentially, what we do is we load them all up with cards. We load them all up with batteries. We give them pre-labeled cards so that all of that work is done for them. So they're just moving it from a a formatted case to a shot cards case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we would check in on the contestants about once a week. We would do medical checks on them just to make sure Mm -hmm. they're alive. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, we'd grab media, swap batteries, and that's it. Mm -hmm. They'd they'd be on their own. We wouldn't... uh, we wouldn't do a ton of, there's not a ton of communication outside of just, you know, making sure they're okay. Would you talk to them like, hey, how are you doing? Or was there like a policy of not? I would that? myself. It was the only people allowed to talk to them, especially season one, was myself, the medic, and a psychiatrist. Yeah, that was literally just to make sure people were fine. It was, it was, it was hardcore. You know, there was, there was a lot of a lot of bears and stuff and cougars and stuff out there. So it was scary. It was scary for us as producers. I didn't sleep for a month. That's really it. The gear was a Canon, a little kind of camcorder, maybe 10 inches long. We have wilderness trail cameras set up all around camp. And they're just, they're essentially cheap motion activated fixed rig. You guys set up that not... They don't set up. We set it up. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's really it. Obviously, GoPros to clamp onto boats or bows or things like Mm -hmm. that. But that's it. You know, we really wanted it style-wise. At the time, it was somewhat unheard of. But I remember saying to the network early on, like, I really want to see if we can make it work. Would a competition work documentary style? Like, would people actually watch that? Do they even have the patience for something like that? And they let us go with it. You know, there was, there was very easy ways to overproduce this and 
make it a completely different show. We could have made it way more dramatic and mm-hmm. and the edit a completely different style. And it really would have been a much more typical reality show. We could have had producers out there, created moments, produced moments, but we just really wanted to say, fuck it. And like, let's just try this. And it was so new and it was so different. We even kind of said to ourselves, if five days in, this isn't working, we'll pivot, you know? <laughs> yeah. But we on season one we shot the first five episodes in five days mm-hmm. and then the following five episodes in the following 50 days right so it's like we were getting so much crazy content at the beginning just because people were falling apart mm-hmm. um that we just went with it and you know we reviewed footage our crew was five people maybe (laughs) and we just kind of sit around in this log cabin i have been dying to ask right because in the show towards the end when people start to to tap out there'll be a, a, a beat where it's like there's a drone shot of like you guys on a boat going to to the place and maybe it's a little bit of like a oh, which person has decided to tap out first moment. And then, you know, you you whisk them away to safety in a cheeseburger. And I, I'm constantly wondering, like, oh, are you are you guys just literally in like a, a log cabin somewhere waiting for people, waiting for the phone call, basically? Are you logging footage? Yeah, depending on the location, um, we have two camera operators that you see when we pick them up, right? Mm-hmm. But every other day when someone doesn't quit, they're just shooting B-roll. It was really important to do that because as raw as alone is, I don't think anyone can just watch this shaky footage for mm-hmm. 45 minutes. So even just like nice, smooth B-roll on sliders and sticks, like everything, mm-hmm. everything we all B-roll had to be very, very clean because mm-hmm. I knew all of the rest of the footage would be just shaky and terrible, which would help the style, but, uh, you know, kind of give you a headache after you a need while. A, you need so. a palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask like a docu-style 101 question? How do you make your B-roll list? Like, how do you know what you need to get? And like, what you what do you tell your camera operators? Using alone as an example, my number one priority was rain, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's very it's very hard to capture weather. Uh, as brutal as weather can be, it's like hard to show the brutalness of that. So that was kind of job number one, get raindrops, get puddles, get storm clouds, get time lapses of clouds, like everything you can to to capture how awful this weather is. And then as you go on, you start to realize what your storylines are. So with Alone, you deal a lot with predators. So in Vancouver Island, we wanted shots of cougars and shots of bears. So we would literally send guys out in a pickup truck and and uh, a thousand millimeter lens and say, try and find some bears, you know? Mm-hmm. And so that, that was their day. And then other days it would just be like, I don't know, just find something pretty, you know, and you're mm-hmm. shooting B-roll for 50 some days. There are some of those as well. But what's nice about alone is you have so much time. Those operators have so much time. They could spend an hour really setting up a nice shot, you know, setting up their dolly or their slider, whatever they have. I'm curious also because the show makes it feel as though you have no sense of when people are really going to be tapping out or not. How do you schedule for a show that could last anywhere between one week and a a year? Is that the cap? Yeah. So when, when it was originally pitched, it was going to be a year. Yeah. None of us thought that was ever feasible. Sure. But Um, what do you say to your wife when you're like, honey, I'm going to go be in this cabin for some time. And yeah. these survivalists seem pretty hardcore. 
You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, she deals with it a lot, though. I disappear for months at a time, all the time. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, I, I, I guess maybe even more, more importantly, like the logistics of like, like how long do you book your crew for? Are they swapping yeah. in and out? How does that stuff work? So basically, you plan on your first month. Everything mm-hmm. from chats with the network, obviously something like this, the budget wasn't even necessarily set. The budget's a hell of a lot different if you're shooting for a month versus a year. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very transparent all, all along the way. And the same goes with crew. And what we would do is, even myself, I have a co-EP that was up there with me. I actually, I don't think I came home on season one, but I just met my wife in Vancouver. And we spent... Mm-hmm four days there and then I flew back out and then he did the same, you know? So Mm -hmm. everyone gets little breaks Uh, because it's a season one though. You pretty much want to be in the field most of the time. First seasons of these shows, you're really trying to figure it out. You you can put all the prep in the world into them, but you're making a hundred decisions a day on the fly. So being in the field as ridiculous as it is in some small cabin with a couple dudes and some whiskey is kind of, it's just what you need to do. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, t- talk to us about the those hundred decisions you're making every day, right? Because you know, uh, you're, if you're getting your footage in weak batches, right? Are mm-hmm. you editing locally? Is are two shooters out in the field and they're logging footage when they come back? How does the what, what does that crew makeup look like in the the log cabin, so to speak? Nowadays, it's a lot bigger, but we started with essentially a production manager, myself, a co-EP, two medics. We didn't even have a media manager because we were like, mm-hmm. we don't have anything else to do. We'll just dump the footage as we're watching sure. it. You yeah, know, yeah. like we know we needed to watch the footage, so we just kind of did all of that ourselves. But no, then everything's backed up in the field, shipped off to L.A. or New York and and then Mm -hmm. edited there. The competition of it all gives it a little bit of structure in so much as like basically each episode ends with either an elimination or a pretty big cliffhanger. Right. So, you know, your your episode order, you know, how many contestants you have. Do you just kind of slice it up from there? How do you structure a season and when do you start locking episodes? When when does the story start to coalesce relative to to how long this open ended sort of story is going? Honestly, not until it's all done. In fifty days, you'll have one day that's an entire episode, but you'll also go through two weeks in one episode. You just mm-hmm. don't know. And when you have such little control over what's actually happening, you kind of just got to go with it. As scary as that is, you know. But I think people have connected to that. I think that even though sometimes the show can be boring. People know how real it is. That's worth a few boring episodes to keep it real. You know, the fatal flaw of these shows is that if you're in a real survival situation, the best thing to do is nothing, right? Like burn as few calories as possible. And so the realness of alone, you know, kind of feeds off of that. But because of that, you're also going to have 10 days where people don't simply don't do anything because you're just burning so much less, so many less calories. Wait, it's better to not do anything than to like look for food and build shelter. Or or? there, there are contestants where their whole strategy is just like, I'm not going to do shit. I built, (laughs) I built a teeny cabin and I'm going to atrophy here until these other people starve to death. Cause somebody decided to go hunt a bear or something. Because hunting. Well, it just burns so many calories. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, and I'm curious about this, Grant, there's uh, lower thirds that'll be like, 
some dude will be like, oh man, I caught a mouse. I'm going to eat it. And it'll be like, this mouse is only 200 calories <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> and so there's like a little bit of, um, you know, a, a little bit of a voice to the show in that sense, right? There are ways okay. in which you can kind of inject not just story beats, but like a little bit of personality or a little bit of an omniscient narrator that gives mm-hmm. context to the decisions that these people are making. Yeah. Um, are there other more subtle or, or more invisible ways in which you're kind of uh, guiding the story when, and, and crafting it? Tell us a little bit more about how you you weave these stories when there is a, just a mountain of, of footage that is someone just kind of taking a nap. Basically, the biggest thing for me is creating at least a single arc, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be the story that takes up the biggest portion of the episode. It could be something simple. But as long as there's some sort of an arc within that 45 minutes, there can be other random scenes or fun little scenes or personality building scenes or scenes with takeaway, whatever it might be. So you really, like for me, the way we outline the show is... We find who that character is that's going to give us that arc, and we find the beginning and end of that arc, and we tell their story. And then mm-hmm. all of the other stories or scenes are laid out in between. It's all very real as far as timing. We don't really, on that show, we've never really played with the time at all, which is really rare for those shows. Mm-hmm. That gets a little tricky as you're kind of trying to you know, storyboard these things, or you're throwing cards mm-hmm. on a wall, and you're moving scenes around. Uh, but as long as it has that single arc, it seemed to play. I'm curious, especially ones that are where the arc is less driven by external factors, right? Like I, I can imagine like the day where someone gets scared of a bear and then they try mm-hmm. to hunt the bear down or whatever. That that feels like pretty apparent, right? But like mm-hmm. so much of the show, I think, isn't that. Walk us through breaking an arc for something that's a little less physical. Well, let's say someone has somewhat of an emotional breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's kind of what we're building to. We really just reverse engineer that episode. That's how I pitch the show to everyone. I'm like, if you want to watch a, a grown man sob uncontrollably, <laughs> sorry, sorry, you were on, you were saying something important. So something as simple as someone just kind of falling apart. We have that scene. We know we have it, and we just kind of have it thrown in act five for the time being. So how do we build to that moment? Right. Mm-hmm. And that could be their, their, their hometown packages. That could be them talking about how they grew up. That could be them talking about their best friend. That could be them sitting fishing and not even catching fish, but you use that footage so that you get to know someone more so that that moment when you get there is more impactful. Mm-hmm. So as, like, that's a very, very simple arc, but it's, it's, it's very achievable in that show because the whole thing is just driven by B roll and, and, voiceover and so if someone's telling their personal story you tell it in that episode so that you really get to know them and you really feel for them when they do fall apart i asked grant the other day if he could if he was on one of these shows if he could win it like if he could win survivor now and uh, well survivor is a different game than than these more pure survivalist shows i believe that's what grant said yeah Uh, but that that survivor is like more about you know, the alliances and the psychological aspect. But then I believe that he said that you said, yes, I'm pretty sure I could survive for a while. And I'm pretty sure your wife said she didn't think he he could. Um, (laughs) Yeah, probably. Sounds about right. I think I do. All right. I mean, I've done so many of these ridiculous shows. I, I know all the tricks alone would be tough for me because I would just 
get really bored, but it's a lot of money too. I'd, I'd give it a, I'd give it a, a go. Having this conversation, it made me realize one of the tricks to interviewing people is to just not say anything, right? Like you set them up like, Hey, Oren, tell me your life story. And then, you know, you just let them, let them talk. Right. And eventually they'll continue and, you know, they'll reveal something deep about themselves if you give them enough time and alone inadvertently does that to the millionth degree right you know i think people are encouraged to especially at night talk about their feelings talk about what they're doing journal a little bit and things get really uh really personal and really dark and intimate introspective introspective yeah for sure talk to us about how you approach those interview pieces, because I think that's something that any documentarian will, will have kind of that as, as their backbone, I think. Yeah. So as we're reviewing footage over whiskey in the cabin, we're, we're also tracking each individual story. The point that we're out there, we've been through months of casting, several rounds of casting, many interviews. So we know the people relatively well on a, on a surface level. Once they're out there and they're starting to go through certain things or they say certain things into the camera, that's when we will ask them when we do see them, like, can you please expand on how you met your wife? Can you expand mm-hmm. on this? Talk about this. Why did you react this way? Interesting. To this? You know, so, so there is a chance to them. do a little bit of story producing then. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Like Very interesting. Basically, basically guidance on what to what to reflect on mm-hmm. um, and what to what to talk about, especially if we need something fleshed out. You know, mm-hmm. if, if we feel like someone's given us half of the story, for example, we'll say, hey, you know, help fill in the holes for us here. You know, tell us that story again. But because they're shooting everything themselves, you're just kind of giving them assignments. Hey, next time you do a confessional, talk about, you know, why yeah. you miss your brother. Yeah, but a lot of that's predetermined. What what they, they go out with essentially a field guide. And what the field guide shows them is it's the technical information mm-hmm. on cameras or how to replace your microphone battery, all of that stuff. That's most of it funny you talk to them and they'll all tell you they've read it like a hundred times because they have nothing else to do (laughs) so they sit around and read these safety guidelines and how to change a camera battery hundreds of times because it's literally their only form of simulation it's the only thing they've got so they just keep reading it Uh, but anyway there are some guidelines in there as well on how to build your scene and what shots we need, things to talk about. We put them all through a boot camp leading up to the drop day. And Mm -hmm. we go through all of that together. We talk about building scenes. We go through camera tutorials and stuff like that. Are there contestants that are more camera savvy versus others that are less preoccupied with it? Yeah, definitely. And I actually think the people that are more camera savvy give you worse content because they're overthinking it and they're producing themselves and they're conscious about how they look and how they sound and what they're saying and how they're coming across. You know, if someone doesn't have any idea what they're doing, they're very raw and real. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I mean, I am curious, and I think this translates to kind of all types of film, you know, which is safety. We'll do a shoot where someone has to punch a wall and we're like, oh, is this going to be safe? Are they going to hurt themselves? Like, how do you figure out that this is going to be even a doable thing? Just putting people in the middle of nowhere by themselves in danger. Because I imagine if like Matt or I came and pitched some insanely dangerous show, people would be like, no, you don't get to make that. So you start basically with people who know what they're doing. So for example, on any of these shows, take this last one, I just finished filming. What I did was I took my, who's now a friend, he did alone with me as well. Uh, he's a special operations veteran. He's highly trained in like jungle warfare and all of that stuff. You know, he's been through SEER training, all of this stuff. So he actually knows what he's doing, unlike most people on the TV shows. But you take him out there and you almost do a dry run of this. If it's a show where you need movement, he'll walk that 30 miles. If it's a show where like alone, he'll stay out there in the elements and say, okay, here's what we need to be careful of. Here's how they could get hurt. Here's the type of medicine we have to have on standby. Here's the poisonous steaks and the poisonous plants. Like he knows all of that. Behind the scenes, we're, we're creating an entire safety guide for ourselves and the crew and protocols. Right. So everything from our medic can ditch someone up all the way to how do we get the Coast Guard in to medevac someone and everything in between. And so the safety obviously becomes a huge, huge part of it. Definitely the most important part, because no one believes how real it is. The producers are not close to these people. But having a plan to get to them in an emergency, pretty obviously pretty important. That's really fascinating. So you basically have someone do the show. Mm -hmm. Someone that is mm -hmm. extremely capable to tell you what you need to worry about. And I'm assuming that he can call you and take his, yeah. uh, you know, iPhone or whatever, mm -hmm. just so he can play Fruit Ninja. Whenever. Yeah, he has, a, he has a satellite phone and yeah, and Fruit Ninja for sure. <laughs> on, this la on this last show that we were prepping for, myself, 
a co-EP and the survival expert went out into the woods and to try and figure out if we had to, if we would give them a lighter or flint and steel because it's where we were shooting was just so incredibly wet. And so that's what we did. We just sat out there for like six hours, me and the co-EP, we didn't get a fire going, but this other guy, he had one going in like 10 minutes. He knew of a flammable sap to, to, to gather from the tree. Sure. Of and course. Of course. Yeah, obviously. So anyway, Just ask you him if he knows the guys. difference between Avid and Premiere next time, Grant. Um. <laughs> so yeah, you use, you use these guys that really know what they're doing and rely on them to build not only a safety plan, but so that you know what to expect as far as the content goes mm-hmm. and the location. How does one get into kind of this survivalist sort of world? If people are interested in this kind of niche sort of world, how would they become a, a part of your world, Grant? I don't know how I did. I, I grew up in Hong Kong. It's not like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm some outdoorsy guy, right? Basically, I was directing music videos and making documentaries. It was that awkward time kind of when DVDs were going away, but before the streamers, when there really wasn't a place for docs, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe one doc a year did well in the theaters, you know, it was that kind of thing, 15, like a 15 Fahrenheit, years ago. Fahrenheit 9-11 or something. Yeah, exactly. Like or a, King of Kong. Yeah, sure, there's yeah. like, there's, there's a handful of them. But King not, of Kong not is great, though. That, that movie oh, is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are film festivals, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Kind of weird. Yeah, but your, your point is that the, the market for it was, was pretty the market, shallow. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, so and I had you gone to film to, school? No, no, I didn't. Um, my first job out of school was in TV, so I've been doing it since I was 20. You know, my first, and my jobs in high school were in TV, but. Um, uh, but yeah, so I was doing that stuff and I just couldn't find a market for it. And so I decided to pitch a show. And so my friends and I shot a sizzle reel, a a two minute demonstration tape on a short track, uh, racing track in North Carolina where I went to college and we sold it. And so I've been kind of doing that ever since that soon after that. Wait, how did you know? how to make a sizzle or like who to sell it to or any of that stuff. I was doing a PBS sh- travel show at the time. Like I was in TV. I, I did have like a couple gigs in TV here and there, but that's it. I was a producer and editor, which it was fun. You know, it was like a very simple show, but yeah. So we decided to shoot this thing and, and it sold immediately. And soon after the same woman that I developed alone with asked me, she was at Discovery at the time, and she said, hey, we're looking for an off-the-grid story. Do you want to go to Alaska? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not doing anything else. And that turned into a show. So mm-hmm. ever since I, I was there for three years, ever since Wait, that sorry. show, I just be- When you said that turned into a show, is it kind of like, do a lot of shows like this kind of start as an idea, and you go kind of shoot a sizzle, and then you bring it yeah. back, edit it, and pitch it? That one was actually Discovery themselves finance development. So they said, we're looking for an off the grid type story. And we heard from one of our deadliest catch producers that there's this really cool little community where you go check it out. So me and my buddy got on an airplane, went up there with basically after contacting the local chamber of commerce, just a handful of phone numbers and a little camera. Um, We had an entire trip planned out all over Southwest Alaska. And we stopped after our second day and I called Discovery. I said, I got your show. I'm not doing the rest of the trip. And they (laughs) said, you're out of your damn mind. Of course, you're doing the rest of the trip. I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm not. I've got your show. 
So we kind of like spent five days with this one family and, um, you know, it's a sizzle reel. So cut it in a few days and it was greenlit and we were back up there a few weeks later, um, shooting a series. It was, it was remarkably fast because it was developed by the network itself. For some reason, after that, I just kind of became like Alaska guy. You get to know the people and you figure out how to do it. And, you know, and then I did a, a loan and I've, I've done a lot of these shows now just because why not? You know, <laughs> you know, they're fun to do. You get to travel to fun places. It's, 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 it's not a bad niche to be stuck in. It does seem like kind of something hard to start from square one. Like, how do you even mm-hmm. know where, you know, what to shoot, where yeah. to go, who to talk to, like any of that stuff makes sense. If there are a few people in the world mm-hmm. that know how to do it, you go to them to do these shows like you. The logistics and safety stuff like that stuff is that stuff just takes a while to figure out. And, okay. and that stuff's so important to networks, you know, that just kind of takes precedence over everything. But you also have to be obviously good at story and good mm-hmm. at music and good at casting and good at yeah. pitching. You must wear a lot of hats in your position. Yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. So are you still pitching like more of your own things? Or are you kind of in this place where people just bring you shows? Yeah, quite. No, I'm still pitching quite a bit. It's a little of both. A lot of people bring me kind of half-baked things, you know, like I'm I'm in the middle of a new project with National Geographic that was brought to me as, hey, here's this talent and here's this kind of basic idea. Can you figure mm-hmm. out how to make a show? You know, it's that kind of thing where you're building it almost from the ground up, but you have like kind of those integral first really difficult pieces to get already figured out. And that's the really reason nice. someone will green light it. Now you just have to prove that it's an actual show people would want to watch, basically. And just figuring out how much it's going to cost and Mm -hmm. how to shoot it. And you essentially build a Bible in the development stage just so that you know exactly what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And is there a drastic range of budgets, like a docu-series for Netflix versus for Discovery versus for... I mean, it's anywhere from 250 an episode to 3 million, I guess. Some of the cable networks have... Pretty low budget. So you, honestly, you can make these shows for that. You know, a house flipping show, for example. Those are not expensive to make. And if someone's spending a lot of money making it, they're probably making it the wrong way. I actually just found out very recently, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but that when you make a documentary about someone, you usually don't pay them. Because I was, you know, working on, you know, interviewing this guy that I thought would be an interesting documentary subject. And I talked to a bunch of docu filmmakers. And they're like, yeah, you don't like, obviously you can't pay the person you're in a documentary about that would, you know, ruin the integrity of the documentary. But so it's fascinating that I guess from like a casting point of view, you're probably not spending that much money though, unless if, if it's a competition show, obviously there's the, the prize. Yeah. And, and even if it's a, like a documentary series or, or, you know, a, a reality show on like, let's say a family or something. <laughs> It, it starts cheap, but if, you know, as it gets more successful, it's no different from actors, you know, because mm-hmm. they, they do become talent. They become the reason people come back to the show. So they do start making pretty significant money in later seasons. Mm-hmm. Right. Kardashians, yeah. for example. Right. right? Sure. You know, they're, sure. Not doing, they're not doing that for free. On the topic of pitching, because, you know, this is such an interesting comparison with the episode we did with John Kroll, who was really all about. You know, he said when you were trying to develop ideas, like making sure that you had some sort of paperwork with the talent and that you had own, you had the relationship, you had the ownership over the specific people, because, you know, his point was like, you know, concepts are a little 
agnostic. They can kind of come and go. And you probably won't sell a show with just a great concept because who are you, right? Um, but I think that with competition shows and with survivalist shows, those rules seem to be a little bit different, right? Talk to us about like what you think, uh, like when you decide to take a show out, what does it need to have for it to be worth pitching? It kind of depends. Um, it depends on the type of show. If it's character driven, it obviously needs the big characters. If it's a competition show, honestly, I, it just has to be different. People obsess over mandates that the networks send out. They send out uh, emails that they tell the agents exactly what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. I typically read those mandates and think, okay, what's the opposite of their ask, right? Because everyone in LA then is scrambling to make a real quick deck or sizzle reel about what's in that mandate. I'm sure they get 50 within two weeks. I don't, I'm not good at playing that game. And so I, what I tend to do is just think of something really, really strange and then mm -hmm. build off of that. You know, a lot of my shows tend to have kind of themes or questions being answered, right? Like, like I was talking about social isolation theory. Like that's what we really talked about at the beginning of Alone or Castaways was about people's need for companionship, working off of the themes of Alone, like, but the opposite, like what draws people together and, and, and will they stay together? That type of thing. That, that's just the way my brain works. I kind of think of one big central question and how do you test that question? A good example, because my wife is watching it, is love is blind, right? Like it's the most simple. It's a, it's a very simple concept. It's a saying that we've all said for a long time. But that show guarantee when it was pitched was we want to test that question. Is love truly blind? As you know, whether you think it's a great show or the dumbest thing in the world, that is exactly what it is. Testing. Someone in a room said, let's test this thing. And that's that's where that show <laughs> right. came from. Two in a hand. And, or is two in a hand really better than one in the bush? <laughs> Should we really not let the bed bugs bite? Oh, no. Sorry. One in the hand. <laughs> two in the bush. Right. So anyway, I, I think that's where a lot of them come from nowadays. Well, Grant, this is um, awesome. Do you, uh, Your next project, do you know when it's going to come out? Like, can we... Look in the fall, in the yeah. fall, cool. In the okay. fall, I we're we're still editing the pilot, the first episode. It's gonna be really good, though. Like, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could talk more about it. Before we move into unpaid endorsements, can I do a lightning round fanboy set of questions, real quick, Grant? Yeah, I probably won't know the answers. Well, no, I think you, I think you will. Uh, I when I told my friends that that we were going to be talking, they texted me a bunch of questions that I, I would re be remiss not to ask. So, are we going to get another season? Right? Like, are you guys still in active production? Yes. Great. Has there been any conversations about an all star season? Yes. Can you say your favorite contestant and why? Alan, season one winner, who ate slugs. He lived on slugs and and <laughs> <Yep>. seaweed. <laughs> he did. Alan to me really he he did as much creating the show as anyone he he was so thoughtful in his narration he had that like great deep voice mm -hmm. it was him that created the vibe of the show to be mm -hmm. honest like that's we we cut Alan's scenes and then that's what the show became mm -hmm. and it could yeah. be him talking about Thoreau while he's taking a bath and it's just like but it worked some mm -hmm. for some reason not everyone can carry the scenes like Alan could but um he 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 definitely defined the show. On that topic, can I just ask a quick question, which is like, what's the most important question you ask a potential cast member? Like when you're interviewing people, 
Is there a question you ask someone where depending on their answer, you kind of put them in the maybe the yes pile or the no, or the no yeah, pile? Yeah, yeah. Generally speaking, why do you decide to cast someone? Yeah, with all these shows, you're just looking for people who are going to accomplish it in different ways. You don't want just 10 fishermen from Pennsylvania who are mm-hmm. all going to go about it the exact same way and talk about the exact same thing. You want a good mix of characters, of stories, of techniques, everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and of course personality when you're just talking to yourself you have to have a decent personality or else you're not going to hold a viewer and do you weight personality more than survivalist capability is it more of an even split not with a not with a loan no survival capability is pretty important just because it we it was never the intent of that show to just drop you know it wasn't a fish out of water type show sure sure there there's there's we always wanted it to have takeaway to have people out there that are actually that actually know what they're doing. Uh, don't get me wrong. Some people get through the screening process and get out there, and you realize they have no idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've just they've talked their way into it. For the most part, they're pretty knowledgeable people. Who do you think would win in a matchup, Roland or Jordan? Jordan. Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> no more fanboy questions, or Orin's going to kill me. Uh, but I do have one final kind of big picture question about the design of the game, and I think maybe your philosophy about how contestant shows work in general. The one quirk of Alone is that as a story engine, the further along people get, the more desperate and sometimes sad they become, right? The more unraveled they become. Towards the end of a season, it can get pretty dark as your characters are losing energy, right? As they're becoming, mm-hmm. you know, more depleted. How do you keep the drama going? How do you keep the stakes going? How do you build stories around people who were pretty darn tired towards the end, basically? It's, well, it's definitely diminishing returns. As mm-hmm. time goes on, you're getting less footage. No question. People are doing less and they're too tired and they're overfilling. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is a problem. That's typically why you rifle through a lot of days and kind of those later episodes, certainly kind of two thirds of the way through, because people's energy is just so low. What we tend to do with all of these shows is you just kind of you rely on some of the more natural elements that they're going through. Mm-hmm. You know, it might be I mean, when people start to crack that, I mean, that is the show, obviously. Sure. Right. Sure. Like yeah. you, know, you said to your friend, like it's. It's just grown men crying. That's, that's what it should be called. And so, you know, you do kind of slow down for those more emotional stuff. And then you really use the elements in nature to kind of like boost up those stakes again, because they're not giving you the content that they were 30 days prior. Even if the best thing in the world was happening to them, they're not filming as much. They're just they're just wiped out. What you do is you just reverse engineer the entire season so that you make sure if it's eight episodes or 10 or 12, it doesn't really matter. You just make sure you know exactly what that final episode is. And what's mm-hmm. going to happen, whether that takes place over six hours or 12 days, doesn't really matter. Right. And then you know what your first episode is, and then you fill in all the blanks in between. You have to make sure that last episode is at least satisfying, mm-hmm. right? You, you, mm-hmm. need, you need something to happen at the end. It's just a matter of trying to figure out how much footage it's going to take to fill that last episode. No one's doing anything out <laughs> <Sure>. there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it yeah. does make me think of there's a there's always a beat where like the winner gets to show their family member their their home. Mm-hmm. And you've mm-hmm. spent a whole season with these people being like, oh, man, that log cabin looks incredible. And they filled it with moss and like they stood up to the snow and you're kind of mentally with them. of like, yeah, this is something to be proud of. And then you can kind of see on their family member's face 
they're like, oh no, like this person's covered in dirt and they live in this weird hole. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's that first moment of going back to reality. But, Definitely. Uh, that is uh, always a, a pleasure for the and show. They, they struggle with it too. A lot of people really struggle reintegrating back into society. I, I know a lot of them really struggle. How involved are you all with the contestants after this experience, right? Like they reacclimate, they go to a hospital most of the time. How, how does that work afterwards? How do they, do you stay in touch with them? Is it, how formal versus informal is it? I mean, I do. I actually, you brought up castaways earlier. I actually hired talent from Alone Season 1 to help me shoot a sizzle reel for castaways, which then I hired him as a kind of survival consultant for that show. Uh, and he and I are still in touch. He just had a kid. You know, like we're, we're friends. I'm, I'm friends, but I, I, I'm like that with a lot of my cast. We're just, mm-hmm. you, know, you spend a lot of time together on these shows, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily alone, but like, on any of them. It's just, you really develop a pretty close relationship with these people. But probably on something like alone, you know them so well, because you've seen like hundreds of hours of them talking about their innermost feelings. And they're like, who are you? No, for (laughs) sure. Happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really close with all of them. But yeah, when we get them out of there, there's a lot of, you know, just medical checks and Mm -hmm. you keep them around for a few days. You know, you can't just some of them do, but you really shouldn't just crush a cheeseburger all of a sudden. You kind of like got to build back up to it or else you make yourself sick. So you just got to monitor people and then yeah, send them home, provide help if they need it, whether it's mind or body and that's it. Well, awesome. Well, thanks for coming on Grant. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Do you mind hanging out with us for a second to do an unpaid endorsement? Of course not. Unpaid endorsements. Mine's a nice and straightforward right down the barrel. It's another reality show that's very different from from Alone or any other survivalist show. It's called LOL or uh, Last One Laughing. It's on Amazon Prime. There's a Canadian version and an Australian version. I'm watching the Canadian version. And literally, it's a game show where they have a bunch of stand-ups locked in a room together and monitored. And if they smile or laugh they lose and get ejected from the room. And the last one to not break wins like $100,000 for charity. And the Canadian one has Colin Mockery from Whose Line Is It Anyway? Jay Baruchel is the the host. It's a bunch of great... Dave Foley is a contestant. There's a bunch of great people, but they're all locked in there with Tom Green. And so like you, he's, he, he's genetically built for this show you realize very quickly that it's not about like who's the the quote-unquote funniest like people are doing material or whatever but that's not going to break a comic do you know what i mean like even if it's really 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 funny it's the weird kind of like silly strange things that really kind of make people go a little batty a little 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 screwy and colin mockery like at one point is like pretends he's a were squirrel and puts on like all sorts of weird costumes and is like humping a table and but like Tom Green will just chant the phrase delicious grilled cheese sandwiches over and over again until it drives someone insane. And that's an episode. So I thought, oh, this is kind of weirdly perfect. It's a perfect analog for alone, but it's called uh, LOL Last One Laughing. It's on Amazon Prime. It's weird and strange and I'm enjoying it very much, actually. I'll definitely watch that. It's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty great. I have been searching for this specific kind of hot sauce. It's called Sambal Asli. S-A-M-B-A-L-A-S-L-I. It's from Indonesia. 
Mm-hmm. There used to be a place on National down in Culver City that mm-hmm. had it. It was an Indonesian restaurant, and they shut down their market. So then I was looking online, but it was like $20 a bottle on Amazon. I wasn't going to do that. I finally found a store that I could buy it, and it just got delivered last night. It's life-changing. It's thick. It's not like a Cholula or Tabasco or something. Mm-hmm. It's thick. It's almost the consistency of ketchup. It's like a sauce. I it's guess a sauce. Yeah. It's not a liquid. It's a mm-hmm. sauce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, does that make sense? And is it super um, spicy? It can be. There's different levels of spice and, and obviously different brands. It's, it's incredibly popular in Indonesia, just nowhere else. I can't even tell you what pepper it's made out of because mm-hmm. it doesn't taste like Cholula. It certainly doesn't taste like Tabasco or any mm-hmm. American hot sauce that I can think of. Mm-hmm. It's definitely like a unique type of pepper that mm-hmm. makes it because it has a unique flavor. And you can put it in everything. I put it all over rice. I put it on stir fry. I put it on pizza. I put it on grilled cheese, literally everything. I don't think we've ever endorsed it. I, I always say that and then I turn out to be wrong. But the software, the service that we use to record this podcast is called Zencaster, Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. And it's awesome. It's free. You can see each other. It's like a Zoom call that records audio, but each audio channel is discrete. So you can edit, you know, you can cut out person or noise or whatever. And it just works. It's like even the links are easy. Like the mm-hmm. link for this, Zencaster.com slash just shoot it pod slash JSI dash grant dash Kaler. Like how easy it is. You just send someone a link. They just need Chrome. They log on and you can record a podcast, video cast, whatever with them. So it's pretty cool. Check it out. Grant, thank you so much for letting me fanboy out. Where can people go to learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, I have a Twitter account and Instagram and all of them. IMDB does work. You can check them out there. There you go. Yeah. Cool. Well, if you want to write us any questions for Grant, we'll forward them to him. Or if you have any comments or thoughts, please email us. We're justshootitpod at gmail.com. You can follow us across all social media at justshootitpod. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at SmiteyPileg. And on everything else, I'm at OKaplan. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlo across all social media. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Thanks, Noah. And you're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.